When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Welcome to episode 427 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Jim Hilton, and I have the pleasure of being joined by freelance Madrid-based journalist known as Fuego Despecion on social media, but JDP to us today. So JDP, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on here. And very much JDP, like we have the purist on before. It's up to him. I know people are going to complain if you're watching the videos. You just get to see my beautiful face the whole time and his Twitter logo, but face reveal is something not to say of the younger generation but the face reveal is on his timeline that's up to him very much just like Pura. so y'all will see his face when he wants you to see his face but for now we just hope that you can enjoy what jdp brings to the table in terms of his tactics his analysis and his understanding of what we watched yesterday in the spanish super cup semifinal against real betty so we'll do the x's and o's and we'll do the individual players and we'll do the course of the game but i think the first thing that i want to hit JDP is kind of what the stakes were. Because for me, I'm of two minds. One, I think under Xavi, Barcelona desperately, desperately need a trophy. There needs to be some kind of reward for, for Xavi to show, hey, that we are at the top of a mountain of some competition and the, the club is something to be proud of. And in years past, I think this is what Kules, who've enjoyed this team for more than a decade, would say that, yeah, the Spanish Super Cup is definitely down that list. There's Champions League and La Liga and Copa del Rey, and even the Europa League. And Spanish Super Cup has kind of been clumped somewhere with the Gamper Trophy. And due to having it in Saudi Arabia, I, I mean, I might even have taken it down a peg because of the weird situation that Barcelona are getting 6 million euros from this competition. Real Betis are getting less than a million. And Real Betis, being the Copa del Rey winners, are the ones deserving of the Spanish Super Cup. And Barca are there because, again, Saudi Arabia just wants to enjoy they just want to enjoy a little Liga, I mean, a now classical final, which for the first time of the new four team format they're getting. So the stakes are kind of weird because I said the atmosphere there and the weird idea that Barcelona maybe don't even deserve to be there having finished just second in the Liga. That's why they're there. Even the red socks and the red shorts was weird. Like they had to register this fourth kit because Real Betis wear black shorts. So Barcelona were forced to wear red shorts. So to me, JDP, it just added up to this thing where the trophy itself really matters. You heard Xavi's, uh, for those who heard the audio of Xavi's speech between the extra times, like this matters to him. Winning matters to him. But big picture wise, the Spanish Super Cup is certainly going to be knocked by detractors. And I understand why a lot of Kool-Aids were both 
I mean, fine with the result, content with the result, but upset by the fact that Barcelona, once again, had control of a match, probably should have won in regulation, and yet there they were again in extra time. Yeah, I think it's something I mentioned quite a few times, but the problem is Barca, when they go on the pitch, they know what they're doing. I don't think, I'm not in the line of the people that think that Xavi is clueless or whatever the discourse. Because you can see the theme is that the first half an hour usually goes well. Against Atletico, we had the same theme. And against most opposition that Barca has faced, which are, so to say, big teams, we see a pattern that Xavi knows what he's doing. Xavi places his pawns and he knows what's going on. The problem is after the half an hour, what, what goes on? Because often Barca are unable to score recently in that 30 minute time, time frame. And there comes a moment where, to my sense, Barca goes, so what now? And it doesn't seem to me as Xavi, for some reason or another, can convey that spirit of keep trying. It seems as the team sort of stops pressurizing properly. And then it's just hoping that Barca go through. But there's definitely something that has to be done both on Xavi's side and both on the player's side to say, look, we can't go on as only play 30 minutes out of 90 and hope that we, we will win. That doesn't work. Yeah, it, it's a weird, weird thing where I think people on social media and some pundits of the club smarter than me have brought up the idea that last year in the Spanish Super Cup, even that Barcelona are not as good as they were one year ago, especially in January when they were really knocking in the goals, scoring four goals a match. And even if they were giving up one or two, they were just dominating last January when those new arrivals came in Obama Yang and Ferran Torres and there was new life breathed in the club. And this club right now seems to be in a worse spot than they were. And even financially, obviously the, the roosters have come to, to roost or whatever the, the phrase is that financially the club depth. And I think not to say we can simplify what the negativity or what the unfortunate parts of yesterday were, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously I'm going to defend Xavi once like I did against Atletico Madrid again and say that he got it right, but He's getting it right with that starting lineup is interesting because with the exception of Alba, who is suspended in the league, coming in for Alejandro Balde, and Sergio Roberto actually playing rather well as the right back and as the captain, that starting 11 is one that is kind of, not say obvious, but the other example would be Ansu, who had started the last two matches and will have to again take a lot of the burden uh, because Lewandowski and Ferran Torres are suspended in the league next weekend. So without exception of rotating him out and then Dembele still starts on the left, Rafinha gets the rare start on the right. And then that midfield trio of Gabi and Pedri and De Young, plus having Araujo and Kunde start as your center back pairing. That starting 11 at this point does kind of pick itself. The only question mark was Ronald Araujo apparently was not hundred percent fit. Having to play 120 minutes is, you know, beyond comprehension and horrifying to see, but it happened because again, this trophy matters for Xavi. So we, he winds up asking Araujo and they navigate and it seems like he's okay. With the exception of De Young and Dembele, who after the match, you know, I had questioned the subs and everybody questioned the subs, which is totally fair because that was a time where Barca, as you said, it wasn't even the 30 minutes. I think it was after they scored the goal. There was a drop-off. Same thing against Atletico Madrid. And then the second drop-off comes when the subs come on and that's really where they came back in the game. I mean, we even saw when that Pedri offside goal was scored, there was a little bit of a drop-off. So it seems like every time that they do something right, there's some kind of drop-off, and 100% that goes on the manager. Now, the only question for you, JDP, is, is that a problem that Xavi can't seem to solve? Because is he somebody who is limited with a lack of big-game experience? Is he, is he somebody who's limited in making those changes? And even the subs, is this sub thing, as in not an infatuation of Busquets, but, I mean, throwing on Alonso over Balde, that was the one that I was really questioning. So putting on Alonso over Balde, not saying Alonso was useful in certain circumstances, but when the when the games become bigger and the games are more important, can Alonso is Alonso possibly the right choice at all in these kind of big games? But is that on Xavi or is that on him being hampered? Because I'm now starting to be of two minds that it seems like Xavi wants to play Alonso in a lot of circumstances, and he isn't just saying, okay, this is one of those players that we're stuck with because of the wages and because of the transfer stuff. Because I think that that's twofold, right? Like the, this team is lacking. High-level depth, they might have already tried to replace Busquets if they could actually had money to spend. But it seems like, well, maybe Xavi would still be playing some of these guys, even if there was other transfers to be brought in. And that would be the consideration that maybe Xavi doesn't know what he has. 
the dis- that's the discussion for me f- because, for example, I think a majority of the choice is understandable. But again, on the Alonso question, that's a separate topic uh, because it's genuinely hard for me. Even if I I followed Xavi since I said so, I've got a great deal of you know more or less how, how he wants even outside of Barca. Mm-hmm. And the Alonso theme topic, whatever you want to call that, does not fit in the scheme. It does not seem to make sense. Is it because he wants to overprotect Balde? Maybe, but equally so. He's played a few times Alonso as centre-back. I don't remember which game it was, and I think we'll also draw. And that showed that this doesn't work. And you got to drop him. That's the thing. The thing, for example, with Busquets or Dembele, you can discuss around that. Because you can see at least, more or less, in theory, what they could bring. But again, for the substitutions, I find it hard because... I, I think generally that as fans, we, we tend to lack hin- uh, insights on the substitution themselves. Because, for example, uh, yesterday, as you said, everyone crucified Xavi, uh, and understandably so, uh, when Busquets came on for Frankie and then there was the Belly subbed off of Fern, who understandably did not have a great performance. But then suddenly, when uh, I think it was the podcast of Siempre Positivo uh, from sport, the Sport Guys that mentioned that. Apparently, both had a discomfort. Right. And now the whole thing changes. So I think generally, as fans, we tend to to sort of over-focus on substitutions. I don't think a majority of them are planned. They just happen with a certain level of randomness. And of course, a certain level of, okay, you can do the substitution, you can change games. But I definitely think we over-focus on them. So while I do think his in-game management has not been positive, that with, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. I also think that generally, even with if you go outside of the Barca realms, we tend to overfocus on those. When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade? I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's Pique and Puyol or Pique and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, and all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, that is interesting because I, I said I would discuss it a little bit more because I want to discuss Busquets and, and Ferran Torres in better, better detail. Busquets is interesting because the big picture is not changed. That A, his wages are way too high at this point this year, but it's also his contract's coming to an end. And he is someone who, having hit his 700th appearance with FC Barcelona, being the third player to ever reach that milestone with a club behind just Messi and Xavi. And with he's 67 behind Xavi, so I, I think third is where he's going to wind up landing. I don't think he should have hit 700, right? I think a lot of Kool-Aid's agree that, that 700 is probably just a few too many, right? He's a legend that was just, not to say overstate his welcome, but very much like PK. I mean, Busquets didn't end his time on, not to say his own terms, but he didn't end it on the terms that were probably acceptable for his legend status. That said, yesterday was interesting because while Barcelona did lose control of that match, they did concede the equalizer. To rely on the stats is, is weird because, again, I watch, you watch the match and you when when the subs came on, when Ferran Torres and Busquets came on, Barcelona were worse than when Dembélé and De Jong were just on the field. And De Jong, his, I mean, statistically, and even the game that we watched, he controlled the midfield, yes. Driving forward, Barcelona controlled, especially in the first 19, 20 minutes of the game when they were up 81% possession to 19. Was, De Jong was sparkling with Barcelona having the ball. And then defensively, and then even with the ball, rather, he only turned it over four times, which is good enough. And he was never dribbled past doing his job defensively, cutting out passing lanes and things like that. But as far as stopping any Real Betis pressure, De Jong still continues to not be that pit lone pivot profile. He didn't have a single interception. He didn't have a single key tackle. Not that he had to, but you look at what Busquets did and the fires that he put out, he did have two interceptions. He did have three key tackles in that game. And there was very much that Busquets defensively does kind of come to the aid of Barcelona where they need him to be. And that's one of those system things where is, is Busquets making those tackles because he's being forced in those situations because of what he physically can't get to or can't do anymore. And is that De Jong doesn't even have to make those interceptions or other things because he's a different player who's going to cut out the passing lane with his legs initially. And he's going to put himself in a position to be able to, you know, just win the aerial duel or win. Well, he had zero zero yesterday, but to win the ground duel that he had to, he was three or four on those and have Pedri and Gabi and, and the center backs kind of be in the positions to make those. I mean, just again, based on and the perception of the team. So it was interesting that the stats didn't really back up that Busquets was the reason for the drop off. Because even looking at the equalizer, the equalizer has nothing to do with Busquets. While it's interesting because De Young and Fakir were man marking each other, Barcelona offensively, especially in the first half, were taking advantage of that with the young being able to drive forward with the ball and Fakir, I mean, with the exception of one time where Ter Stegen had to boot it out of bounds to the, to his right, when the young was kind of caught in between two minds, took that extra touch when he received it. And then what it was, Canales was able to defend and guard both the young and Pedri allowing Fakir to come forward and put the young rather Ter Stegen under pressure. That was the one time where Ter Stegen kind of got it wrong. The other times Ter Stegen took advantage of that matchup pushing Barcelona forward and raising that line of confrontation because Iglesias doesn't have the mobility to mark both Koundé and Naranjo. So Barcelona was doing, I think, a really good job tactically of pushing that other center back and dribbling him into space. And then when Busquets comes on, you know, that kind of gets slowed a bit. And Fakir, at that point, this is on Pellegrini, who made the adjustment. Fakir is no longer defending Busquets. Fakir was then trying to get out a little bit wider, and that meant that Busquets had to guard somebody else. So Busquets was then picking up that other interior who was coming forward or that our defensive midfielder, if you will, who was coming forward and because Gabi was playing a little bit higher as well to counteract that. Uh, so again, tactically things change. And again, even on the Fakir equalizer, that wasn't Busquets's fault. Busquets was guarding somebody else on the, on the far post. That was Alba and Ferran Torres who just, I mean, they just went for this crazy tackle. Both of them fell for the fake by Henrique. And then Fakir comes in late, meaning Kunde who had to step to Henrique because he then had the wide open shot meant there was nobody to, pick up Fakir, who is coming from that right wing. Again, that's the fault of Alba. That's the fault of, of Torres. And then again, Kunde and Araujo were just trying to put out the fire. So if those guys don't bite on that fake, that shot either gets blocked or there's somebody in line to pick up Fakir and that equalizer never happened. So again, it's not that Barcelona lost control, but in that moment, 
two bad decisions by two players who should know better leads to that goal, which kind of, I'm going to throw you the point, wrap it up with Busquets and Ferran Torres that for Torres, I don't want to throw this one out. This one was, you know, usually this is a safe space for Ferran Torres. We give him a little bit of slack, but we don't say like throw him out with the bathwater yet. But this may have been the worst cameo that we saw from Ferran Torres. He came in in the 63rd minute. And I can't think of a Barca performance for him that was this rough. I mean, this was, it wasn't even like misses in front of goal, which is what he gets criticized for because he put himself in the right position. He was, I mean, it was rough. Like defensively, I had never seen him be this bad. His decision-making was awful. It's, he could not read the offside line. I mean, it was, it was real rough for Ferran Torres to the point where I can say maybe this was his worst. I can't imagine this happening again for him. But yeah, I mean, helping on giving up the equalizer and then all his other work offensively just a bad game for Ferran Torres, like real bad. Yeah, definitely. I, I find, I find the, it's interesting what you said on the Busquets-Frankie debate because this idea that, of course, Busquets sort of tackles, intercepts, whatever, but the compromise is essentially slowing play mm-hmm. or at least not being as mobile. When you have Frankie, you have that mobility, you have that counter-pressing, you have that sort of transition... But you do have the, the counterpart is the fire he puts on might come back quicker. And I find that interesting because the discourse in the last two, three years has always been we can't search for a new Busquet because he doesn't exist. And that's exactly the premise here is do you accept the risk of Frankie eventually becoming a better defender? Do you put trust? Because let's remind us of Frankie has played a disposition role maybe three or four times in the last years. And that's my question again, because mm-hmm. we have the same problem as well when people, for, there's this one, I think it was a touch map from who scored, where people mentioned Pedri, you know, had this many touches with Busquets on, this many touches with Frankie. And the conclusion for many was that essentially he was free with Frankie and not with Busquets. And again, the same question is, this, the data sample we have is very small. Because we have, what, probably at least 20, 30 games with Busquets. And you have about two, three games where he has a sort of role. So to sort of say, this is what happens when you put Frankie on, not really. It's what happens. As you mentioned, for example, yes, Busquets might have done mistakes. Yes, it might have seemed as Barca where we saw. But it's not a causation thing. It's just Barca were generally worse at that time timestamp. And Busquets happen to interact within that time frame. And that, that is to me the main problem. We try to find reasons, connections, when sometimes football randomness just catches us there. Mm-hmm. And that's to me summarizes the whole Frankie thing is he was good. But again, is it enough to now conclude that suddenly Frankie is the chosen one? I don't think so. But let's give it a try because Barca have nothing to lose at this point. They know that probably Busquets might be re- retiring slash moving to another football club in Saudi Arabia, MLS or whatever in summer. And Barca need a solution. So you either put these next five months to use and you try to put Frankie on. Look what happens, like we did yesterday. Or you will have eventually to trust that you can accommodate him as an eight uh, with Subimendi, for example, coming as an option. But again, the question there is, if you move Frankie up, what happens with Gavin Pedri? Because we saw yesterday that that midfield was good because Pedri has his role and Gavi has his role. So does it really make sense to change things up again, as you mentioned? So to me, I feel that the Frankie debate thing, we can only conclude sort of observations, but we can't because... I ju- uh, probably the best point I've seen around it was Domagoy, who is a great writer, who mentioned the fact that the problem is for us that Frank is not a natural defender. That's not his thing. Busquets is a natural defender in the sense of he has this sort of defender perspective. Well, he will go, okay, so uh, he'll plan in, in case to put his interception. Frankie, for me, is, I've always said that he's someone who, who will destabilize. He will not stabilize. He'll go at the opposition and he'll break lines. That's his thing. When he drives with the ball forward, A, he's very athletic, which means he's very quick. And secondly, he divides players. But he's never been someone who I look at him and go, he's very calm. That's not the profile. But that doesn't mean he can't become one. 
I'm not saying he will have the interception tackles of Busquets in his prime years. But what's for sure is that he definitely can improve on that and that can be worked on with the coaching staff. Because as mentioned, we have a very small sample and maybe, who knows, if you give him, I know, five games in a row, from the first to the fifth game, things might differ a lot. And I think we should be ready that Frankie will do mistakes, but equally see Busquets is doing them as well. And any player you will put there at the, at the beginning will do their mistakes because they're not used to it. Because we often forget when we talk about tactics at the end of the day, when you put a player on X or Y position, what you're doing is you're saying, look, play with these players and get me the solution. Frankie right now has not played enough games with Gavin Perdri to understand how they move. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned this, that the reason why the midfield in the first 30 minutes looks so good is because Frankie seems to understand when Pedri goes up, when Gavi goes deeper, and etc. And therefore he adapts. But if you don't give him the time to adapt... How do you expect him to understand this? So to me, Barca just have to be clear on what they want and therefore understand and accept the risk of having Frankie there and see how it goes. 100%. I agree. I agree with that. I think, again, I think the debate is fair to say or question in his mid-20s, but having never really played that role for Barcelona, can Frankie de Jong add those defensive things to his game? Or is it something that because he does not naturally do those, he doesn't already have the natural proclivity to defend in such a manner at such a high level, I should say, you know, winning duels, especially like he doesn't win ground duels. Is that something he can add to his game? Or again, at this point in his career, it's something he cannot do. But you're right about the sample size that we still don't know the, the answer to that. And the only way to find that answer is to have Frankie de Jong and Pedri and Gabi be your starting three in the most important games this season. And not just like pick it randomly, but just to actually stick with that. And that is a default position. And I think you get the sense that that is what's happening, right? Like that the club understands and, and knows where it's at. But it does make some of those games in the fall even puzzling as to why it was Busquets in that circumstance and why, uh, almost why it took so long to make that change. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think as well as the course of this match and where Barcelona had it and lost it, the, the other question comes from that, that ceiling. And trying to figure out why, this isn't a, an indictment of Barcelona, but I, again, stuck between two minds. Real Betis is a top four team in the Liga. Pellegrini has his, has his men defending better than they have had in recent seasons. Like We know that Real Betis, over the last three to four years, they like to create chaos. They like to get bored. They like to attack, attack, attack. And defensively, especially two seasons ago, it was a bit of a disaster. And they were, you know, they're in Europa League spots for a reason. But they made the adjustment at halftime, bringing on William Carvalho, who was a more defensive. Well, he is. He's a defensive midfielder, as opposed to Canales, who, I mean, he was being forced to play in this double pivot behind Fakir. But Canales uh, truly is an attacking midfielder. And there's a reason why he, of all the other midfielders I think we saw in that game, looked a bit lost. You know, we know that Canales is capable of more than what he showed. But what that allowed to do when Cavallo came on at halftime is Luis Henrique got a little bit, not even farther forward, but he was able to stay forward and on the counter, knew that he had more cover than he had previously. Same thing with Rodri on the other side. Rodri also had a little more cover with Culver Hall, you know, kind of fortifying the middle of their field because Barcelona, you know, a credit to them as well. They weren't being over-reliant on their wings with Dembele and Rafinha like they usually are. They were being very direct in that first half through Bedri, through Gabi, as you mentioned. Those two were, were bright signs in getting forward, direct, combining pretty well with Lewandowski and things we have not seen in recent weeks with Pedri and Gabi working with Lewandowski. So that was all bright signs. And then I think, too, the, the, the inverse of that is that while that part of Barcelona, you go, well, they survived against Real Betis because Real Betis are one of the better teams they played this season. Even, you know, not just out, outside of Spain, too. Real Betis were our top, what, seven teams they've played? And so you worry that, okay, Barcelona allowed this good team to come back in the game when they should have already put it away. And you say, if you have that same performance against Real Madrid or another quote-unquote big side, then you're going to fall to the sword. And if they put like that on Sunday and they give Real Madrid those those circumstances, Real Madrid are going to beat them 2-1 or 3-1 in regulation time. And that's what you that's what you worry about because it puts a lot of onus on that back line because, I mean, this is all one big idea, but I do want to transition to the positive too, in that if you have Koundé and Araujo as your center-back pairing, and you have this version of Ter Stegen, which we'll do separately. But if you have that trio in particular, and then I add Balde back to things, and if you get that kind of performance out of Roberto or, or something out of your right back in that cir- circumstance and don't have to do Kunde on the right with Christensen and Rajo in the middle, because even that trio with Rajo, Christensen, and Kunde, 
that to me, again, have given up six six goals in total. But even Kunde and Araujo, that duo has only now just given up the two that they gave up in this game for Real Betis. I mean, that defense seems to be good enough to compete with anybody. Barcelona as a whole, as you mentioned before, the 11 on the field, the circumstances that come when football randomness comes to come to play. And unfortunately, I think that's the main through line that while Barcelona is good enough, A, their depth when they bring on those subs does always take some kind of hit in some way because Barcelona can't go three or four, five deep like Real Madrid can. And then part two of that is, yeah, this team cannot live in chaos. When the other team has their 10 to 15 minutes, especially those other good teams who can do that for 10, 15 minutes, Barcelona are conceding. And, and that is a worrisome sign because it continues to be the same team under Xavi. You're good enough to compete here, but the minute you have to go up to the top level, you just don't have it for a myriad of reasons. That's definitely the case. I definitely think, for example, when we talk about can Xavi improve things, one of also the responsibilities of the said coach is off the ball. Because you can talk about on the ball. These are decisions that are made by players. Sure, for example, Ferran can have a bad game. He can have a bad pass. There was this one back pass that was really weird. Sure, Lewandowski, for example, his touches, that's not something he can control. That's for sure. But you can definitely control how the team reverts backwards, how they press, how they counter-press, and how they interact without the ball. Because this is more than just a 1v1 thing. This is a general setup thing. And the... Constant we've seen in the past months, if not the entire year since Xavi has come on, is that if Barca do look fine on the ball, they do look promising, off the ball, it's an entire disaster. Because we've seen so many dis- uh, disconnections. A majority of the goals that Barca concede, they're not goals to, without you know, discrediting the opposition that are obvious goals to concede. They're dumb goals. They're goals that should not happen in the first place. For example, as you mentioned, when Alba and Ferran decide to jump on, 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 their, on their attacker. Why? How does that work? These are things that cannot happen. We saw it against Inter Milan, for example. These are goals that at this level of football, if Barca do want to call themselves elite, can never happen. And we, it's not a thing also of a player. Because Bar, we have to mention that Xavi has mixed up his 11s quite a lot which is understandable given the uncertainty, the 11s being pressurized to play Rafinha for 16-0 and the Bale at the same time, which is another whole other topic. But at the end of the day, as a coach, you will more or less have to guide your team as to understand, we know how they're playing on the ball because you have scouts, you have analysts, uh, you have the whole coach- coaching staff who tell you, okay, so for example, in this case, Enrique was obvious that he would be a major threat. Fekir, the same thing. There were the major threats, and you could see that. And the question is, for me, Xavi has to find a way to limit both and generally to have a general pressing thing, either man marking or zone pressing or both. Choose one of the three, don't care, and stick with it. Because the problem with Barca so far, to me, is that we've relied too much on individual marking. You can do that, but it has to be clear. And when, for example, Alba Fedan, they press the wrong guy, or whoever does the mix, or Busquets at times makes the mistake, or even Frankie at times does the mistakes on jumping on the wrong player. You either have to see a progression individually, which means less individual mistakes, or something is wrong with your general shape. Because it cannot be that, say, five players constantly do the same mistakes. That's something that, if with the quality that Barca have, is impossible. Because Pedro and Gavi, again, Gavi, he, we've often talked about him as a pressing monster. Rightly said. But then when he does jump, he needs coverage. And that sort of chemistry to understand, oh, if he jumps, I don't, is what's missing at Barca. And that seems, data and just the eyes, indicate this is not an individual mistake. This is a collective mistake. And these collective mistakes are managed by coaches. That's how it works. Because it doesn't matter who plays, so to say, you're going to press. Yes, you do have defensive attributes. Of course, getting past Araujo is more difficult than getting past Christensen, of course. But at the end of the day, you know your profiles. You know who's, for example, more comfortable defending out wide, which, for example, Busquets isn't. That's without a doubt. Yeah. So whatever players you play, make sure that they're comfortable defending the way they are and therefore minimize the mistakes. Because a majority of the games are won if Barca don't concede. The problem is they do concede in situations that can be completely avoided. So 
to me, Xavi has to be very critical, and I hope he is. And he looks at the team and he said, look, boys, we can see two goals. It's not the first time. Because in another goal against Espanyol, same thing. These are goals that should not happen. Uh, so you either make sure you score more, you outscore the position, uh, which was more or less what Kuman was doing, or you limit them. But at the moment right now, Xavi stands at the point of we're good in possession, but we don't get goals out of it and we concede too much. So you need to either fix both or fix one of the two to make sure you have progress. Because as you mentioned, a year ago, it felt like Barca were better. And with all the investment, with Rafinha, with Kunde, with Christensen, this does not make sense. Xavi cannot go to the guys and I need more. Having shown it in one year, he has unable to take them a leap forward, which technically on paper with all the signing has been the case. So to me, this is the biggest question right now. The off-the-ball thing is for me, A, one of the easiest to fix, and it's one of the most critical things to fix. Yeah, the irony about the names you just even mentioned, with the exception of Rafinha, obviously, who I think Barca fans wanted more. But as I said, statistically, Rafinha doesn't actually, or he didn't at Leeds United, even being the guy, didn't provide that many goals and assists like, I think Kool-Aid are literally expecting the, the numbers to be adding up with him. But when the names that you mentioned with Christensen, with Lewandowski and with Kunde, those three in particular with Lewandowski, I, I know it feels like he misses all the time, but he even scoring yesterday has 19 goals in 21 games plus four assists. Like that's what you bought him for. And that is what Lewandowski has done. He has scored the goals. Kunde has been as good as we have kind of advertised him to be. And Christensen has barely put a foot wrong. I mean, any worries that Chelsea fans provided when I when I brought them on to, to kind of profile him were not say misguided but in the same way the the, mis- the games that he made those mistakes in unfortunately for Barcelona they have not got to that level yet <laughs> they've not got up to that, that that highest level so whatever has been asked of Christensen he's been able to do this season which again I think there is some irony in the fact that those big additions who would also bring Barca forward have come in and actually done their jobs and as you say, it's actually the whole structural setup, which again goes against Xavi and is a criticism of him because it is a whole in totality, this whole team to add those great pieces. And in theory, the team has not improved. I mean, even that 101st minute goal for Real Betis, at some point you do both. You tip your hat to Laurent Moron for that backheel goal to get through Araujo, to get through Ter Stegen. You know, maybe Ter Stegen's positioning was wrong in, in that instance, but I mean, Araujo didn't have it covered either. And so Ter Stegen was kind of stuck there on that spot. And it's, I mentioned it on the five headlines. It's kind of like in basketball when you let a post player get deep enough. At some point you say, well, I guess that's good offense because they set up everything um, in, in, the, in the original part of it. But key to that is you cannot let that transpire, right? You can't let Marone get that ball so deep. Why did he get it so deep? Well, that's because, once again, Henrique was in a 1v1 with Alonso. And not say that's on Xavi, but that's not a situation where you expect Alonso to succeed. And I, I think... I, we don't need to relitigate the Alonzo thing. The reason why he's here, as I keep saying, is he's cheap and he understands concepts. And so Xavi's infatuation with him, though, to me, is getting a little bit too far. Like, I understand why he arrived. He arrived for coverage. He has covered as a left center back where he's been fine. Not good, but he's been fine. He's been passable. He's been serviceable in a, te- in a, in a team that has no money, that, that needs some kind of depth. But again, the minute you need to come take a step forward, and this is about his renewal, the minute you need to take this team a step forward, Alonso can't really be on your field. Because as you mentioned too, the other the difference between Balde making that same mistake and Alonso making that mistake is that Alonso is 31 years old. And as someone who's that age, I can tell you, you we don't learn this stuff anymore. I'm just, I, we're, I'm done, I, you know, very much like it. Alonso. I'm done learning, I, I'm done. But Balde and younger players, the idea is like, how will Pedri add these things to his game? How will Gabi add these things to his game? How will Balde or all, again, these other guys who you think obviously have... The career of uh, their career path is going to have all these turns and and wind, winding and all whatever. But Alonso, is he ever going to be able to mark Enrique? No, like that's not. It's not going to change, right? It's not going to change from week to week. Or there's nothing for him to look at film and go, oh yeah, I'll just be faster. I'll be better. Like no, he's not. He's not going to be exactly that. And in the inverse of that, I'll give you the other positive here, JDP. As I gave you the negative, was that Ansu's goal. And Ansu is this thing where because he is this enigma at the moment. Game to game. Like, he hits that shot. Like, we've built this narrative of Ansu this year. He's not scoring enough. He looks like he's devoid of confidence. He's not going at players. Uh, what's wrong with him? And then Ansu has a goal where he wraps his foot completely around it, going towards the corner flag, away from goal, and scores that one across the goalkeeper. And you go, oh, yeah, that's Ansu Fadi. That's, he reminds us, like, okay, he's in there. Like, and you see that goal, and you go, yeah, like, he's still Ansu. 
Like maybe he, if he does that once every four games, like Ansu is Ansu because that's what I mean. Good players can do that. That's one. insanity. You, exactly. You generally get that insanity because again, my problem with Ansu is players before and after injury. That's not that's not an easy thing to evaluate. No, because you have players that have had billions of injuries, and we almost lost faith in them. And one of their names is Dembele. We've had I don't know how many injuries with this guy. So we know how the gist goes. Then you have players that generally injuries do not affect them. And then... Well, like Rouse, I would say the Rouse is an example of that. Right. Every time he gets hurt, which he does a lot, he comes back and he looks like a Rajo. Yeah, he's always the same guy that came again. Then you have guys right now like Ansu where what the hell do I do with you? Uh, because I've been at parties in the last months of going around, Ansu, let's build from zero. You've had injuries. We know you've had quality, but now we need to see who you are right now. Because it doesn't matter the type of sh- shot you hit two years ago. That was two years ago. Uh, and generally, after his first injury in La Liga, I remember we waited a whole, we, we waited a long time. He came back on after a year, I think, or whatever. And he, he scores this wonderful goal. So what do we do with you? Because we've seen you coming back from injury and exploding the nets again. And whatever the hell you've been to on the last months. There's definitely a physical thing, I, I believe, but there's also, of course, uh, a psychic thing, which is he's not getting the confidence, and that's normal, because it's hard to get confident when you barely play. That's the first thing. Because since, supposedly, when he's fit and how much he has played, there is not a big coordination there. Uh, there's a big dissonance. And right now, when we, as you said, when we saw the goal of Ansu yesterday, we went, ah, yes, that's the Ansu. But why did we say that? Because we're looking in hindsight. We're not judging on all the performance. And I think right now he's got quite a high XG and he still has a go every 100th minute or 110th uh, around there. So it doesn't look that bad. The problem with right now is how do you go around him? Do you try to make him a starter? Or do you have him as an option, as a whatever option that can come off the bench, can play, but isn't a definite start? Because depending on that, depending on how far answer goes and it's also dependent on Fedan, the whole left wing situation changes. Does this mean, for example, that Barca have to accommodate Dembele as left wing because yesterday he was superb? Does that replicate? Because we know that Dembele's sort of inconsistency is a huge problem. So to me, that's the main problem is that Ansu right now is filled with uncertainty and that means that we have to judge him with uncertainty. That we can't go he's back because the truth is he isn't. We have signs that show that his ball striking is still similar, but we do not have the guarantee that, for example, the left wing is still the right place for him. We've often talked uh, on social media, even before his injury, but now the injury might actually prove that, that we might put him as nine because his ball striking is that good. But is it really a wise and right to put nine, especially when you have Lewandowski and therefore technically hampering his development? Yeah, I don't know. So that's the thing for me. We have to take a new page with Fansu and say, okay, calm down, take your time and see how it goes. If you score more goals, for example, I don't know, for example, whether we should start him against Real or not, because it's a classical, even though it's a super cup and half of the fans don't even give a, give a damn. It's a super cup and it's against Real Madrid. So that's a big one, especially now in the context of the whole title race and whatnot. Yep. So definitely. To me, the point is, because I, I see a lot of people saying, oh, Ansu is because he's got number 10. It's possible. I'm not saying it isn't. But it's also just what he is right now. We, we don't know what player he is, really. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I have nothing to add there. I think where we end the show is on the other side of the field. The guy I know was starting against Real Madrid, no matter what. I probably should have started with him. I, I promised that we would. But uh, Mark Aaron Ter Stegen is the reason that Barcelona got a result yesterday. Uh, unequivocally, Definitely. he is the reason. It is Ter Stegen. That 30th minute save from the Betis corner, then he had another one a few minutes later, and then the double save in particular, that one-handed stop diving to his right right before halftime. Those four saves in particular, a huge reason why Barcelona even went into halftime one nothing. And then the PKs, you know, Juanmi and Carvalho, those are not good penalties, but Ter Stegen still had to save them. He still had to guess right, and he did. And so Ter Stegen, to see him play in this way, I think, you know, it's interesting because for outfield players, which I, I think... Most people and most of us were, so most of us are better at analyzing and understanding 
you know, the decision-making and the choices and all that with outfield players, but with goalkeepers, so few of us were goalkeepers. So it's difficult to analyze why a goalkeeper gets lost in a wilderness and what happens when they find it again. Cause it just looks like reaction time. It looks, it looks like, you know, where their feet are placed. And you know, it's very like- hard to analyze. There's only one guy, um, John Harrison on Twitter. I'll link you mm-hmm. the, the account. Who's a, I don't know if you know, he's a goalkeeper expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's one of the only people where I can look at their explanation and see that makes sense because a lot of the said self-proclaimed analysis on Twitter on goalkeeping is f- conspiracy theories at this point. Well, yeah, near posts, far posts, like how much did you judge those things? Yeah, what they're like, you know, yeah. it's very hard to judge. And especially for me, Mats right now is sort of the definition of progress isn't linear because in 2015, he was great. And then what? And until Valverde, he was pretty much great. And after 2018-19, which was the last big season he had, then there was whatever the hell that was. Yeah, uh, for almost two to three years, which is like a third of your career or a fourth of your career. Like, that's a huge sample size for multiple seasons. And I think you're right, like, to the point about, like, which players are who and how high can a player recover and things like that, where I think for all of our outfield players, with exception, I think, like, a guy like Busquets, again, like, De Young. His like, how would you grade his season? Is still completely up in the air. Like, we still have no idea. Like, we don't. Have it can go from hell to heaven in three seconds. Quite literally. Right. But for Ter Stegen, I think at this point, well, that's why I was going to argue about Ter Stegen now. With ex- like the the outfield players, something different. But for Ter Stegen, I think with confidence, with full confidence, I can say because of what we've seen from August to January, this is going to, I think, define Ter Stegen's season. Like it definitely, point, right? Because- like I think he is back, and we can in full voice kind of say that because of the sample size being big enough of a half a season. I've already. definitely been sort of, I had the doubt in said October, November, because of course we had a few months where he seemed good, but with a goalkeeper, the problem is what part is the defense and what part is the goalkeeper? Mm-hmm. Because you can say this shot, he didn't save, fine. But again, for example, if say Kunde or Araujo or Christensen or whoever was there, does their block, we're not talking about this. And uh, I think it was Kazis who said to another goalkeeper that we remember goalkeepers the most when we talk the most about them, which means they can take, they can have a hundred saves. If they do one save at the last minute that fails and they get scored on, the world will talk about this. They won't talk about the 50 saves that were before. And that's the problem with goalkeepers is rating a goalkeeper is mostly based on the non errors, which is really hard to judge in itself because when they do a save, we're all claiming great, and then you have a 10% chance that he misses, uh, he misses that save and done. And the biggest problem with goalkeepers is they, they can't really be involved because they're sitting 99% of the time in their goal sticks doing nothing, essentially. They can be alert. You can say what you want. At the end of the day, they're only concerned, so to say, on a certain portion of, say, the gameplay, unlike other players. And to keep that sort of concentration, because as you mentioned, the reaction time, knowing that maybe for 90 minutes you won't have any job to do, you'll be literally jobless, it's hard to to sort of judge. Because I'm someone who's always said, we have to judge on the full 90 minutes. But are you really rating 90 minutes for a goalkeeper? No, you aren't. And therefore, finding to understand what's reaction time, what is properly technical ability to say to punch the ball or whatever, claiming the ball, for example, this is a big one. We've seen it with the hair, for example. This, these are problems that in analysis are very challenging to me. So to say this is fully Matt or not, definitely not. But for example, yesterday for me is an example of saying Matt is essentially taking more or less his abilities and he said, I'm confident with them and I can deal with my problems. Mm-hmm. Because the near post, far post thing was always a big problem in the set three years where he hasn't been this good between that over the season and whatever, whatever year we are on now. And to find that sort of balance to say, okay, he's maybe not perfect, and that's for sure, and he might still consider a few goals that, that are arguable, but generally he seems more confident, and if there's two positions where that, that matters the most with strikers, and we see that with Ferran, the other opposite, that's what it takes. Yeah, I mean, what we do know, though, is that Ter Stegen did have some shoulder injuries, major shoulder injuries. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and knee injuries, right, that he required surgery. And, like, the club, because there was no backup, well, there was, but, you know, Ter Stegen was 
Right. He was an unquestioned starter for those years that he was going to start even through injury. And I think for the first time in many years, he's kind of said it. And we kind of have to believe him that he is fully healthy finally. And he's able to take more risks. Exactly. Like that. And the other thing with they're saying too, is as I mentioned, the one quote unquote mistake he made yesterday was a structural thing where it was actually DeYoung's mistake that they're staying sure. that for. But as far as playing the ball on the ground with his feet and the way that Barcelona are opening things up, especially using their wings, Tersegan has been good too. So he has been influential on kind of both sides. But once with Barcelona having possession, then yeah, having to switch his mindset and have that reaction time and be the goalkeeper, which is your job at the end of the day. Well, speaking of jobs, I mean, as a freelance journalist, I want people, I want people to be sent in not only your direction on Twitter, of course, but your website, which is positional-play.com. So yeah, uh, JDP, where can people find you? And yeah, I do appreciate you coming on the show too. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, there's my Twitter. I suppose you can plug it, whatever. So there's that. I published this morning a newsletter on uh, why we should stop just watching elite clubs. So if you're interested in understanding why you might feel depressed about your club, this newsletter is for you. And that's about it. Well, yeah, I always say as as far as watching, obviously we're all cool lazy. That's why you're here. That's why you're watch, uh, listening to the end of the show. But I also say try to support local. Try to look at your and sure. it doesn't matter what the level is. Like try to try to find it's a different experience. Side. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Right. Local side. So JDP uh, again, wonderful debut on the Barcelona podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for uh, we're also on Twitter and Instagram too. Down in the show notes below. So follow him down in the show notes below. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. As I said at the Barcelona Pod. I have to re- keep reminding myself. We're also on TikTok as well. So that's a new thing for the younger generation. We are on TikTok with that kind of stuff. And then Close Facebook group is the Barcelona podcast. A lot of that Close Facebook group also, there is some overlap with the Discord, which a good announcement is that I finally was able to fix the Discord. So for those who've been kind of waiting or like, oh, what's happening here? Discord is finally fixed after all these weeks. So uh, you can join down in the show notes below as well and then join us over there. And then we are on YouTube where these five headlines were for this match. That's at the Barcelona podcast, of course. But so much thanks go to you for listening to the show. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Of course, bye. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.